Welcome to SKUcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs in the promotional products industry. SKUcast shines a light on our industry's best work, features maverick personalities, and discusses what's really involved in running a modern promotional products business. SKUcast is the official podcast of Common SKU. Let's not talk about size. Let's talk about health. How healthy is your business? And that stuns most people. They're like, what do you mean how healthy is your business? I mean, like, how healthy is it? Are you profitable? How, what's your stress levels? Uh, how, how's life? That becomes a very real conversation then, as opposed to the ego of revenue. By his 35th birthday, Mike Michalowicz had founded and sold two multi-million dollar companies. Confident that he had found the formula to success, he became an angel investor and proceeded to lose his entire fortune. Then he started all over again, driven to find better ways to grow healthy, strong companies. Among other innovative strategies, Mike created the Profit First formula, a way for businesses to ensure profitability from their very next deposit forward. Mike is now running his third million dollar venture. As a former small business consultant for the Wall Street Journal, is the former MSNBC business makeover expert, and is the author of Profit First, Surge, The Pumpkin Plan, and The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, which Business Week named the entrepreneur's cult classic. And Mike will be our keynote speaker at SKU Camp September 30th through October 3rd at the Ace Hotel in New Orleans. Mike will be talking about how to grow a colossally successful business by planting the right seeds, weeding out the losers, and nurturing the winners. Seth Godin said of Mike, he is for the entrepreneur who is stuck at being a wandering generality instead of a meaningful specific. You can learn more and register for SKU Camp at skewcamp.com. Today's episode is brought to you by CommonSkew, the effortless business management platform that powers you to process more orders and grow your business. To learn more or to start your free trial, visit CommonSkew.com. I'm Bobby Lehu, the Chief Content Officer at CommonSkew, and I'm joined today by Mark Graham, CommonSkew's Chief Platform Officer, to kick off our conversation with Mike. Mike, we are so excited to have you speak at SKU Camp in New Orleans in the fall. Would you be able to take a few moments to give the listenership a little preview as to what you're going to be speaking about at the event? Yeah, absolutely. And I can't wait to be there, too. Uh, we're going to have a big, good old time. Uh, we're going to be talking about pumpkins and... Uh, that's why I mentioned big, because we're talking about specifically big pumpkins or colossal pumpkins. And what's interesting is I, uh, despite a confluence of strange events, studied pumpkin farming for a year of my life, right when I was beginning my entrepreneurial career, and discovered this faction of pumpkin farmers called colossal pumpkin farmers. And they changed the growing process from the ordinary pumpkin only slightly. Maybe about 5% of the process is changed, but the result is colossal growth. And uh, the funny thing is what they do are the same things that businesses need to do. So I translate, what I'm going to do is translate what it takes to grow a big pumpkin, a colossal pumpkin into how to do those exact same things in our business to have healthy, fast, organic, explosive, colossal growth. Mike, one of the things you talk about is about weeding your garden. Yeah. What's the most common problem you see when a business or entrepreneur goes through trying to weed his or her garden, so to speak, and nurture the ripest clients? Is there one chronic problem that everyone deals with and it's very difficult to get past? Yeah. Um, well, when it comes to clients, it's this focus on revenue. I, the old, I need the money <laughs> and we sell anything to anybody. Um, you know, we kind of become entrepreneurs, quite frankly. We will, uh, right. we will say, you right. know, what do you want, customer? Uh, I've never done that before, but okay, you, you, I need your money. I, right. And so we, we continue to diversify. I, I shared in um, another book I wrote this this concept of always diversifying, but I really wanted to amplify it for people to see. 
I have a guy who uh, maintains our lawn, nice guy, Ernie. And uh, this is a true story. A few years back, he came to me and said, hey, Mike, um, I noticed, uh, I looked on your roof and that the gutters were kind of clogged. Do you want me to go up there and clean them? So I said, okay, yeah, do it. And he came back down after cleaning the gutters and said, no, I noticed that um, some of your roof shingles were damaged. Do you want me to replace that? I said, yeah. And he went out, he bought ladders and came back uh, to fix that. And when he's up there, I mean, literally he kept on going. He's like, oh my God, the chimney has problems. He kept on expanding because he had what he believed was a captive client. You know, he had me. And you can, you can continue to upsell, right. offer more. The problem was he was had to diversify his offering. He didn't know how to replace shingles. Actually, after he installed them, he installed them improperly. He had to come back a week later to fix it. He um, he never did any masonry work before. He had to buy equipment and stuff. Well, the thing was, the competitor down the street that does, just does lawns, in that one day, it actually took two days for Ernie to do all that stuff on my house. The other lawn guy cleaned up like 15 lawns. He's racing through them. He, the other guy had this specialized equipment uh, to just do lawns. He could charge uh, the same amount Ernie was for charging for cleaning lawns, but he could do it now one quarter of the speed because of all the tools and equipment he had. And Ernie had to go back and do rework where this other guy was just blazing through stuff. That's the problem that businesses have. We think that any revenue is good revenue and that a captive client, oh, we can just offer new products. We can just introduce new things. But the runs don't get done correctly. There's there's misprints. We have to redo it. Um, the quality doesn't meet the standard that the customer expected. We have to redo it. Instead, master one thing. And ultimately, and I'm going to teach this at the event, master one type of customer. Because when you master one type of thing for one type of customer, you become the world famous you know, heart surgeon, if you will. You, you become the specialist. And when when someone has a special need, they look for a specialist to serve it. That's why I reference a heart surgeon. You know, if if I have a rash on my skin, I'm going to go to the general practitioner. Yeah. General practitioner can analyze a rash, but they can also check you for Zika and do all these different things. But when there's a life-threatening problem, I have a heart problem, that general practitioner actually has to say, sorry, can't serve you. You have to go to someone else. And general right. practitioners, they get a $50 copay. A heart surgeon gets, you know, a yeah. $500,000 pay on heart surgery. Specialists dictate a premium and they attract customers that value them for offering that premium. That's what we need to do. Mark, we're, this relevance to what Mike's talking about in our industry, we're an industry of nothing but diversification when you look at the varied products that you can sell in terms of promotional products to a customer. But where we probably run into diversification problems is where you hive off and start focusing on the incentive business yep. or where you start to focus on company stores when that's really not your focus. Wouldn't you say that's where the danger comes for our yeah, industry? Yeah, I was thinking, Mike, as you were talking about this, is that we, we've got a lot of earnings in the promotional products business. And, and I'm not pointing fingers necessarily at all sorts of other people. I can certainly point fingers at myself um, in terms of the, the experience that I had in building my promotional products distributorship right sleeve over the last 15 plus years. What I think what's really interesting is that uh, there's maybe two comments here. Number one is in the promotional products industry, you can sell t-shirts, you can sell pens, you can sell mugs, you can sell baseball hats, you can sell bags, and the list goes on and on and on. And what I think is interesting there is that selling T-shirts and bags and pens and so on and so forth doesn't necessarily mean you're not focused. But Bobby, to your point, what I think where you get this lack of focus is when you have a distributor that's like, I can sell you these products. I can sell you company store programs. I can sell you graphic design. I can sell you premium incentives. And all of a sudden, these are different business units that are, they relate yeah. somewhat back to the T-shirts and pens and bags, but 
when you look at the specialists right. in the promotional products industry that really kill it in company stores, like the Access Promotions or Brand Fuel or Bobby, your former employer, Robin, you can't touch them, but yet there are other companies that may be able to run circles around those companies in areas like creative services or areas of premium incentives. So I think that's a really great reminder. And Mike, you might be sitting here going, what are you guys talking about? I'm not in the promotional products industry. But the reality is, is that premium incentives and and company store programs are just like the windows and the eaves in your previous example. I agree. You know, I think it. I've experienced many industries now, not from running businesses and just consulting or observing. And I find that there are certain truths that permeate every industry and this need to focus is one of them. And so I totally can see how it works in the promotional industry. You know, one thing about focusing on a certain type of customer and why it's so important beyond just the product offering is that we learn to speak the language of that type of customer. And there is inherent trust when we speak the customer's lingo. So, you know, if someone comes, I own a membership organization for accountants and bookkeepers. If, if a promotional company comes in here, and I work with a couple actually, and says, hey, um, we have great ways to advertise for your business or to, or to get the word out, um, and that's it. Okay, it's interesting. But if someone comes in here and says, oh, we understand that a membership organization like yours, the biggest challenge is a retention issue, yeah. uh, that there's a big turnover. Right. Now they're speaking the language of a membership organization. Right. And then they can say, you know, we have particular promotional items that speak to retention, something that's a, a longevity type item. You know, that's the type of language. When I hear that, that uh, vendor, that promotional provider immediately has my trust. I know that they get me. And so I think that's one of the, underutilized opportunities uh, when we focus on a customer is that we got to learn their lingo and inherent to that is trust. And when you have trust of a customer, you can, you know, it'll dictate a better premium for yourself. Mike, you had, there were, you mentioned in your book that there are three types of clients, good clients, bad clients, and non-existent clients. (laughs) Right, right, right. Can you explain what you meant by that? Yeah. And they're not necessarily in that order. That's where, that is the order most people put on, put them in saying, you know, if I had to prioritize my client, the best client is a client that pays on time. They love what I do. It's a best client. The second best client is a sucky client because at least they're paying me money. And the worst situation is no client. I actually reordered that and said the three types of clients in order are best client, no client, bad client. Because a bad client (laughs) is someone who is not ever satisfied with your work, uh, they may be bad mouthing you, even though they're buying your your offering. Uh, they may not yeah. pay you on time. They may never pay. They may require you to redo the work uh, multiple times. The funny thing is, a lot of businesses pay more attention to their bad clients than their good clients. A good client buys mm-hmm. and they serve them, and they say, "Well, thanks for that order," and then never follow up with that client again, hoping the client will come back because they're not a headache. But the bad client who's like wasn't happy, the owner of the business is catering to them, saying, "Well, what can I do to make you happy? I'll, yeah. I'll do anything to serve you." Well, the truth is people hang out with people like them. So bad customers who are have unrealistic expe- expectations, who don't pay well, they hang out with other people who have unrealistic expectations and don't pay well. Well, guess what they're saying to them? It's like, you wouldn't believe it. There's this promotional company that I never pay. I complain all the time and they give me the best service ever. You have to use them too. <laughs> so we con- you know, a lot of us wonder, why do we constantly attract bad clients? It's because we're catering to bad clients. Right. A, a no client is better than a bad client. Because a no client, yes, you're not making any revenue, but at least you're not distracted by making extraordinary effort. 
now you can take that time that's been availed to you to focus on your true best customers, over cater to them, and now start attracting more great customers just like them. That is awesome. What, why I'm laughing so hard is because I'd written it down in the order you had published in the book, good clients, non-existent, bad clients. And just that old sales guy, old sales guy in me would not die, would not think <laughs> that you could not be in that order. So I read it in the order that I thought it should be. Oh, that's exactly funny. exactly right. Just the bandwidth that you do not have because you're focusing on bad clients. It's so hard to let go of that revenue. It's just so hard. So hard. It's yeah. Oh God. But man, that, that's entrepreneur again, right? You're, you're, right, you're, right. you're, you'll do anything for the money. And the, the most insidious part is, uh, is the after hours when, when we finally get home and say, God, the day's over. It was a grueling day. There's one customer that will still sit in our mind, even while we're trying to go to sleep. And it's that bad customer. Like, God, oh, if I didn't have to deal with them, they're such a headache. If I just didn't need the money that badly. And they actually start chewing up the unconscious or subconscious time where instead of, envisioning the future of our business uh, and planning for a better future focused on this negativity. So availing yeah. ourselves that uh, emotional space too is, is an underrated, but so necessary benefit. Yeah. That psychic benefit is huge. Yeah. Hey, Bobby, I, I, I wanted to loop you into this question as well, you know, drawing upon the yeah. experience at Robin, given you were involved in a lot of company mm -hmm. store programs. Just to set up this question, within the promotional space, a lot of larger customers, let's call them Fortune 500 customers, will typically go out with a big RFP to go out to the market and, and get responses for their big company store program. The common knowledge or the common sort of wisdom within the promotional products industry, whether it's right or wrong, is that if you get that $5 million contract with Citibank, it means that you're going to be in for their company store business, you're going to be in for their custom business, and you're going to be in for all the business they're going to throw at you, which a lot of distributors get very excited about. This is a double-barreled question in terms of both of you. And we'll start with you, Bobby, and then, and then to see whether Mike agrees or disagrees with this. Do you think that that approach is fundamentally wrong in terms of going after that Citibank $5 million contract where you ultimately get dragged into a mishmash of service offerings that you may, you may be really good at, say, two of them, but you're not good at all of them. And then all of a sudden you staff up, you get overhead to go and accommodate this business, and you're not really good at all of it. You're only good at some of it. And then you fundamentally disappoint the customer. I know it's a big question, yeah. but we got Mike the guru on here. So I, I, I wanted to see what he had to say after you. I will say yes for the average distributor that has an entrepreneur mindset. But if it's your focus, and we're getting into this topic Mike writes about called the AOI, the area of innovation. For us, what happened to us is we started focusing on that particular UVP. So programs and fulfillment and merchandising and e-commerce and pick and pack and all that became more and more our UVP, our area of innovation where other people could not do it. So we went through this process of where we started letting go of the clients that right. did not fit into that particular UVP. So we started hitting that area of innovation. Now to your question though, Mark, to the average distributor that sees all RFPs as fairly democratic and just sees a big pile of money, yes, I think it's, it's such a dangerous thing to wade through because there's no discipline developed or there's no systematizing going on. That's Mike's big point with this about, and I'll let him speak about that magic place where your top clients and your most 
lucrative service intersects with the ability to systematize. And if you can't systematize because it's a complex business, and if you can't make that your area of innovation, I think you should stay away. But I'm going to shut up and let Mike talk about it. I'm with you. You know, it's it's terrifying, though, to stay away from a big opportunity. It, it's They're so appealing. Mm. The uh, the other risk, too, of course, is yeah. it's an all-in bet. So if you allocate all your resources to one customer, easy come, easy go. Yeah. And, and the decisions, you may be providing the world's best service. Literally, Citibank may have never experienced anything as good as this, and they can still drop you because they have a new manager, you know, someone to, they're bringing in their buddy, right. and you're out, and now you have all this overhead. So move with caution. I mean, if it's a good opportunity, and you can cater to this market, and you can make a good profit margin, and you can improve the systemization and continue to improve, I like to pursue things like that. But I, I got to uh, substantiate with other right. clients like that. Yeah, if you're just dependent on one right. customer, realize you're just now an employee or a division of that company. That, and that company has the right to cut that division at any given time. You're not a true business. And so I've seen this before. Yeah. I had a friend who was doing $10 million in phone services as many years back with one company. I won't mention that company. And that company made an internal decision one night and said, you know what? We're just not going to do this anymore. And they called my friend and said, sorry, uh, we decided to cancel the, your services. That next morning, it wasn't like they had a wind down or, any, you know, the, he's just a contractor. They just, no, we're going to cut this division off. And the next morning they were out of business. And he, that was all of his business. He went bankrupt. So proceed with caution. That's that's the word. And look to diversify within that type of customer. It, it's a weird balance because I believe we need to be very focused, but I also believe we need diversification. Not in the types of customers, just in the quantity of customers. If you make an all-in bet with one there's risk. And Mark, that exactly was our challenge too. And one of the interesting things about those types of programs, Mark, to your point, is that that's typically what happens is that suddenly you, the 80-20 rule is not, it's not only 80-20 anymore, it's 90-10. And you're suddenly at the behest of yeah. this one particular client, but it's a huge danger area in our, our industry in particular. Well, and, and you know, I, I think I asked that question knowing of some of the answers to it, but I think it goes back to what you're talking about so well, Mike, at the beginning of the podcast, which is you think of those companies, whether they're in the promo industry or whether they're in the, whether any industry that are just so good, they just specialize in one particular area that you know that they're absolutely the best in the world at. Those are the businesses that generally tend to be around the longest. They're the ones that command the highest margins. They're the ones, if they're purchased, usually com command the highest multiples. I think as entrepreneurs, not entrepreneurs, you think of the best brands in really any industry and you go back and look at, uh, look at them, they're specialists. Um, and I think if you're a specialist, you can scale. So Yeah, I, you know, I use an analogy with, with doctors and I already alluded to this, but I want to take a little bit further. You're the general practitioner and the specialist. The general practitioner is trained to diagnose anything. But when it comes to a life-saving procedure, heart surgery, brain surgeries, cancer, whatever, you always go to a specialist. And the general practitioner actually knows that they can't say, hey, uh, I know you have a heart problem. Do you want me to do the operation? I've never done one before. This will be my first. We'll be like, no, no. The, the specialist, we want someone that's done thousands of operations that has a more than a proclivity, but a, a, a professional experience uh, doing this for years. The, the thing is, only few a few customers need heart surgery, thank God. The vast majority, everyone goes to a general practitioner to get their general checkup. Uh, but of everyone going there, only a small portion need the surgery for their heart. The, the lesson is this. While it's the minority of customers that need it, once it becomes life-threatening, they will, consumers will go to extreme measures to get the best. They will travel great distances. They'll do whatever it takes to get the best. Conversely, a 
general practitioner, we want someone that's in our backyard that charges a cheap copay. And uh, if they up their copays or they move out of town, I'm not going to chase them. They're a general practitioner after all. Well, we have to understand business, it's the exact same way. A large portion of customers are looking for a commodity purchase. They just want the cheap pens, the cheap mugs. That's the cheap, cheap, cheap. A small portion see that their purchase, what they're doing, right. is serving the life of the business. Like promotional items are key. I, I Coincidentally, my company yeah. sees promotional items that way because we use it as a retention item for our members. And we want them having items that constantly remind them of their affinity and relationship mm. to our organization. Yes. There's a guy who gets it. Yes. Yeah. Right. But I'm saying like, I, I also realize I'm the minority. So what do I do? I go out of my way to seek out a promotional source or sourcer that can do the proper design, consistency, understands like the different products that are out there and, and how they complement each other. I'll pay a premium for that for a, a promotional company that gets it. The irony is most are not practitioners though. Most of them say, oh, I have a, a mug. You want a 16 yeah. ounce or a 12 ounce and we can stick a label on it. Right. No, I don't want that. Uh, let's get back yeah. to the essence of what I'm looking to do. Maybe a mug is one of the applications, but I want it done around this revolving approach of retention. How, how do I get a drip campaign going to my members of giving them different promotional items to keep them excited? There's very few yeah. that are lifesavers uh, yeah. out there that are heart surgeons, but I, I know them, I found them and now I work with them and those companies can charge a premium to customers like me. Mike, you're a desert Island client, right? I loved that quote in your book. If you could bring one client to a desert Island, who would it be? Who could you stand to be with for the months or years it takes you to figure out how to get off the Island? Who can you trust? Who do you love? Who might actually work with you to find the way to survive or even thrive yeah. during your stay? It's a great way to frame the question of who is it that we serve best and work. And uh, with yeah, best. that's exactly it. Who's the desert Island customer. Once you identify them, I'll give you the ultimate hack. And we're going to dig into this at, at Scoo camp. My promotional provider, they uh, now have a relationship with my web developer. They're so in sync now. As we do web updates, uh, the promotional provider, the, uh, they understand that they need to modify some of our offerings. We need to change the colors or something like that, or, or maybe there's something that's very complimentary. The hack is this. Once you identify who that Desert Island customer is, Find out who the other vendors are that they depend on and build relations with them. Not, not to ask for referrals, but to better serve your common customer. Mm. Because when you better serve your common customer, now you yeah. build trust among not just your customer, but also those other vendors. My web developers turned my promotional guy onto more than just mm. me, the established existing relationship, but now to other companies that they've developed websites for to my promotional guy. So there's a great network of opportunity when you understand the vendor network beyond just yourself for your customer. Cool. That's like a lateral business development move there. That's pretty cool. Yeah. You gotta be careful. It's gotta be very authentic. I, I've seen yeah. people try to do it and to say, Hey, I work with Mike. Uh, who can you refer me to? And that's not how it works. So Mike, I, I can't let go of this topic. We started with this topic, but I have to quote to you my favorite quote from the book. And this whole thing about trying to trim clients is really hard, really hard yeah. in this business. Your quote said, when figuring out which clients deserve VIP status, you can't just go with your gut. You want clients who have potential, who are open to new ideas, who have the money to pay you what you're worth, who respect you, who are going places and who want to be a part of it. Now, here's my favorite part. And you most certainly can't wait for your awful clients to suddenly realize how great you are and turn into awesome ones that never happens into the E to the V to the E to the R. Right. Yeah, we hope it will. That's the hanging Chad that we're all saying it's going to drop, you know, but it won't. There was a study conducted by a company called Strategex. They actually focus on large companies, but this applies to small business too. They identified that if you take a hundred of your clients, the lowest 10 or 20% that we're trying to cling on to, our hope is that they will become one of the top 
you know, 10%. Uh, it happens about 0.1% of the time, <laughs> which means most small businesses that are small business will stay small business. The personality of a customer, they don't pay you on time or something, rarely if it ever changes. So if you have a small customer who is not profitable, the belief that they're going to become a big customer is about 0.1%. You got, you know, you're, you're literally better off taking that money you're spending to support that customer, hire employees, go and play roulette. The odds are better. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So, but, but I also understand how scary it is because we, there's, there's some behavioral effects that go on, but basically when a check comes in our pocket, we actually measure the check, not the, the profit. We say, Oh my God, they wrote us a check for $500 or $2,000. We don't yeah. measure it actually costs us $3,000 and we lost money on it. We just measure the check. So yeah. what, what I suggest is kind of dip your toe in the water here. Let's start off with one customer. Just either terminate the relationship with one or go to them and say, we have to set new expectations. And if you can't comply with it, you got to go. You know, you have to prepay or you have to do something that would potentially move them to the next level. At least do that. But just sitting there and hoping that that's the biggest waste. I have a question for you, Mark. Something that happened to me was an eye opener was one time, and this was such a revelation to me. I was always ranking our customers by gross sales. And then one year it was about, and this is about every six month cycle. So I would do this at the July one, I would do it and see, you know, who, who was most important to us, that type of thing. It was always by gross sales, which is ridiculous. Now this is pre-recession type activity that was happening. And I decided one time I'm going to list these clients by gross profit. Now, this isn't minus some of our obvious selling costs like the samples and things like this. This is just pure gross profit. And what I was shocked about was my list on the left, which was gross sales, was the clients that I work for. The list on the right, which was gross profit, was the clients that are working out for us. And what amazed me was how that shifted the list all of a sudden. But I'd never done that. In the years that I had been in the business, I'd never done that simple exercise. And I hadn't taken it a little further. And I hadn't taken things like number of orders processed year to date for that client, just some of the overhead and operating expense type activity. I don't know whether this is unique to the promotional products industry, but I think that what's that famous phrase that sales is for sales is ego and profits feed families. Like yeah, gross sales egos, gross sales, uh, gross profit feeds families. Right. right. And, but if you, you just think about the media landscape in the promotional products industry, and Mike, I'm sure that you've seen this many times in, you know, the past industries that you operated in, as well as uh, other industries that you consult yes. in. But um, we've got these lists in our industry that rank the biggest suppliers by revenue, the biggest distributors by revenue. And it's sort of a riff on the Fortune 500, I suppose. But then, you know, at these events, which are all great events, there's lots of fun to congratulate people. They all come up on stage and it's so-and-so has sold $495 million worth of promotional products. And everyone's like, oh my God, they're huge. And I know. And, and, and it's it's interesting. And I remember we, we had this conversation and I, I won't mention who it was because I don't think it's, it's fair, but <laughs> it was a conversation we were having with a mid-sized supplier in our industry. So mid-sized suppliers, let, let's say they're doing around 40 or $50 million, no slouch, mid-sized company, good, solid business. And they were speaking about a larger business that was just bigger than they were. And we were talking about them. And and this one, the the smaller supplier said, I'm not sure that I would want to trade places with that person. Even though everyone in the industry says, look, look how fast they've been growing. Look how big they are. And I thought that was just really, really interesting. And the reason for it, he said, I'm not sure they're really making any money. And he wasn't saying that from an envy position. It was a very level-headed comment. It kind of stuck back, it took a step back. And I think you did, Bobby. I remember I looked, looked at the expression in your eyes when he said that. And it's interesting. It is interesting. And just as to how 
sometimes the big yeah. number isn't all that you think it is. You know, there's that saying, revenue is vanity, yeah. profit is yeah. sanity, and cash is king. I think that is the absolute yeah. truth. I, I take revenue, one other element, I, I call it stress, because revenue means there's obligation, right? The more money I take in, if I take in 40 million, yeah. I have $40 million of obligation to deliver to my customers. Stress points. The counterbalance to stress is profitability. And a $40 million business that's making no profit is extremely stressful. And I'd rather, I'd rather own a $1 million business making no profit than $40 million of obligations out there. So I want to keep revenue right. in check to keep my stress in check. But what counterbalances it is profitability. If, if I have a $40 million business that's taken home right. you know, $10 million in my pocket every year, yeah, it's not so stressful anymore. Um, we yeah. we got to look at both numbers. What I say to businesses too, because I, I literally just got back from India, spoke with 10 different entrepreneurial groups out there. I'm, I'm heading out of the country again, and I travel the U.S. constantly speaking with entrepreneurs. I ask them when they talk about that top line, like, hey, how big is your business? My counter question is like, let's not talk about size. Let's talk about health, which is the balance. So I ask, how healthy yeah. is your business? And that stuns most people. They're like, what do you mean how healthy yeah. is your business? I mean, like, how healthy is it? Are you profitable? How, what's your stress levels? Uh, how, how's life? Yeah. And that becomes a very real conversation then, as opposed to the ego of, of, of revenue. Yeah. yeah. Great question. Mark, to that point, before we leave that, we're starting a new series called The Path to Profit. And as I was looking at this, I got to thinking that there's a $24 billion industry on the distributor side. And there are two major lists that govern what we think of. They, they sort of have misshapen the idea of what sales success looks like because it's a top 40, top 50 list. $24 billion industry, even to hit that list, you have to do at least $20 million on one list, 40 on, on promo marketing's list, and then you have to hit $40 million on ASI's list. That basically eliminates 99% of the businesses in the industry from the success conversation. Like, what is success? So back to Mike's, I just love what Mike said. Yeah. You know, how healthy is your business? It's not a race to the top because a race to the top could be a race to the bottom. It could be. It would be interesting. <laughs> this might be the subject of another another podcast, but to look at the number of companies in top 40 and to see how many of them, uh, if you look at the list five, five years ago and you look at uh, and you look at it subsequent, is that how many of those companies are not on there? Now, yeah, some right. of them may right. have shrunk or maybe some of them have gone out of business. So it is interesting. Um, so, Mike, you spoke a little bit about right. this concept of firing clients. So I, I wanted to get a sense from you. If, so if you're, you're in the promotional products industry, you read the pumpkin plan, you come to SKU camp, you're fired up about weeding out your bad clients, but you've got 250 clients. You've got sales reps that are servicing some of these accounts. And you know that, let's say, 25% of your customers per the pumpkin plan should be fired. What are some of the things that you can do as a business owner with all of the stuff that's at stake? to start getting rid of these customers. Yeah, so so we're going to step through the process because it, it does sound terrifying. It actually kind of gave me the quivers when you were saying fire 20 you know 25% of clients. I'm like, "Oh my gosh. Um really?" Well, I'm being dramatic. No, I know, but, but you're right. We we do have to get there, but we also the goal isn't just to fire clients. We got to replace them with revenue. So we step yeah. through it. Step yeah. 1 is we go through the list of clients and say who is right. the client that is the most costly to our organization? the most emotional cost, the most financial cost really isn't benefiting us. Let's just get rid of that one customer and then feel the impact of it. Because a few yeah. things will happen. When we fire that worst customer, our, our, that lost revenue we're so afraid of, we're like, oh my God, we're losing so much money. We'll realize, oh my God, we, we didn't lose much money at all. Because A, it isn't much money compared to all your customers, but also you're not expending the resources now to support that customer. So you actually may even see a little bit of a profit boost when you fire the worst customer. But the, what I'm really looking to do is the gain of time. 
And with the gain of time, can we concentrate on our existing best mm. customers even more? Could you imagine if you had more time to just call upon your best customer, just to hang out with them, yeah. speak with them and learn more about them? My experience shows that when we go to our best customers and just enhance the rapport we have with them, there's an instant 10% boost in sales. Customers are like, oh, yep. you know, it's You're so right. funny you called me. I, I was just thinking of something we needed. Those moments of I was just thinking go in the customer's mind and fade away very quickly and they don't take any action. But if you have a regular rapport, you can capture that business instantly. So I, I think yep. what you'll find is you fired that one worst customer and within a very short period, if you're calling on your best customers, you actually will see an increase in both revenue and profitability. Then we remove a second customer. And when we say remove them, I'm not like we're, we're not calling them and saying, you're never doing business with me again. We do it tactfully. Maybe we do it by increasing prices. We just reposition ourselves by saying, you know what, our minimum order quantity, our amount now is $10,000 minimum. And uh, you guys aren't at the threshold. Yep. Some of those customers may actually will step up. In that case, yep. you're golden. And then we go back to focusing on our best customers, trying to clone them, learning about the vendor network that they're in, trying to expand ourselves in that community. Then- you fire another customer and it's this constant process. The funny thing is I bet you a lot of people already have done this in their business, but not consciously. They've had that very first few customers they had where they would just do a minimum run of like 10 t-shirts or something like just, just to get some business in the door that they just say, you know what? I, I just don't take that business anymore. I, I think that's already happening. We just now need to make that a very conscious, deliberate process to up-level our clientele. You know, it's interesting. It reminds me of this one experience I had with a customer who was just driving us crazy looking for ideas and quotes all the time. So would call up and say, hey, Mark, we're looking for ideas for this upcoming trade show. We're looking for the ideas for a client uh, giveaway. We're looking for ideas for such and such. And we would dutifully prepare a presentation and quote, and it would take all sorts of time and creative energy and would take the, the time of a rep. And the conversion rate was yeah. nil. Yeah. It was horrible. Or you know, maybe we got some $150 order out of one of it. But I looked at the time and I said, this is crazy. And so what I said to them the next time they called, and this was really out of desperation. It wasn't after reading your book or anything. Like that. I was just, <laughs> just said that this was the only thing I could do at the time is I said, thank you so much for contacting us. We're really excited to prepare ideas for your upcoming product launch. We've changed our policy to charge $1,000 for the ideas that we present credited. that will nice. be uh, credited at the time of the order. And I can tell you that that got a response pretty quickly <laughs> and smoked them out of their cave pretty quickly where they're like, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll call you back and see whether there's uh, we, we've really got something here. And I just I never heard from them again. And I thought it was just the most hilarious thing ever. But it worked. It worked. It worked. I mean, what a great process. Could you imagine if you didn't do that, you'd still have them as a quote unquote customer taking up all this time, but never buying from you just by setting that standard, the, the real them revealed themselves. And I, I don't think you're suggesting nor am I that they're bad, bad people. They're just a bad yeah. fit for you. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't serve your, and for us to have a successful business, it needs to be a win for them for sure, but it has to be a win for us simultaneously. So kudos to you for doing that. And, and to get a little deeper in this, Mike, from your book, I, I've written these notes about how to fire a client. There was a couple of ways that you suggested. Eliminate services was one. Prioritize the stars, giving preference to the best clients first. We used to have a saying in our <laughs> right. office uh, when someone would walk into me, typically as an account executive, who was stressing over 10 different multiple high priority projects at the same time. And I would always say, who can we afford to not piss off? That's where we start. 
giving preference to the best, raising prices. We talked about this and, and it only happened a few times because I'm going to quote Mike and then I'm going to, I'm going to say something that almost sounds contrary to it, but there's a great quote in the book that says, don't use the kill strategy as a wake up call for abusive clients. They will never wake up, just kill the blight, move on. And that was, that was the case with most of the clients, the bad clients we would work with. There have been a few cases where we were able to suggest raising prices, but we were willing to walk away if they weren't going to agree to the new pricing. We just wow. had that happen, Mark before I had left and uh, we had a client that was doing around 150,000. They agreed to the new prices the next year. They had 250,000. I just heard they're actually going to double and do about half a million. But that was that was one out of, I can't tell you how many through the years where we thought the kill strategy would be a wake-up call and it really wasn't. One interesting was to, to refuse to two-time that you have other conflicting relationships because you could be working in verticals or industries with certain clients. Uh, Mike, are there any other ways, any other tactics you can think of about how to profitably fire, fire a client and in a way that's a you know politically correct and smooth way to do it? Yeah, it's just prioritizing service. One of the best examples of this is I had a friend who was in the promotional item space, actually. He sell sold bracelets predominantly um, and other kind of fashion accessories. He caught onto that Lance Armstrong uh, bracelet, you know, meme, yeah, if right. you will. But he would do all the knockoffs. So he was more of a manufacturer. He actually manufactured them. And one of his customers was Walmart. And Walmart would buy you know, 500,000 to a million units at a time. Another st- business client of his was uh, the thing called the dollar store. Here's what was interesting. He went through his analysis and identified his worst customer actually was Walmart, which is kind of ironic because Walmart was doing the most revenue with him. I mean, millions of dollars, but he couldn't comply with all their unique requirements. You know, the all the bracelets had to be delivered on like a Tuesday morning between 1130 and noon. And if it was outside that window, they'd penalize him financially. If the UPS code was in the wrong spot in the box, they'd penalize him. Again, I'm not saying Walmart's bad. They just have their own requirements to achieve their objectives. Well, what he identified was that his true number one customer was this dollar store company. Here's what he did. He had a sign up. I love this. He put a sign up all his reps desks and it said, our policy is always answer the phone on the first ring and take an order. And it says that when the phone rings, if it's the dollar store, our true number one customer, to start, start taking their order. While you're on the phone with, if Walmart calls, let them go to voicemail and then call them back at the conclusion of taking the order. <laughs> the second line was the game changer. It said, uh, if you're on the phone and it's Walmart, start taking their order. While you're on the phone, if the dollar store calls, immediately disconnect with Walmart, hang up on them, and uh, start catering to his other customer. And what happened was, I want to say nothing short of miraculous, but in hindsight, it's, it's obvious. The dollar store started going, holy cow, we're, we're being treated preferentially over anyone else. We've never been treated so well. He Uber catered to them. They started placing more and more orders like them. Mm. And then the, all the copycats, yeah. Family Tree, uh, mm. whatever the these different types of stores started doing business with him and uh, Walmart started to slowly curtail its demand. But my friend Joe, his business grew explosively. So the argument is just prioritization of clients. Once you sort out who your true clients, best clients are and who aren't Uber cater to your best at the directest regard for your secondary or or your, your worst clients. And there'll be kind of some of this natural selection process that goes on and still politically correct. You're still, you know, it's giving them service. You're just not prioritizing uh, the ones who shouldn't be prioritized. But it sends a message and a real signal. So that's <laughs> what a great story. So Mike, in, uh, you, you've been very generous with your time. And if it's okay, we have one more question for you as we, uh, yeah, as we wrap up. And then of course, we're uh, so excited to 
see you in person in New Orleans for uh, what should be a phenomenal workshop with you. Okay, so you've written several books. Uh, you've spoken to thousands of entrepreneurs. You've interacted and consulted in numerous industries. You've been a, a multi-time entrepreneur yourself. Um, I believe it was within the computing and IT business. Have you been able to pinpoint what the biggest challenge is when it comes to entrepreneurs dramatically growing their business? The biggest challenge? Well, there, there's a series at different levels. When it comes to small business, hands down, the biggest challenge is trying to be everything to everybody. It's this generalist mentality. Even though we don't think we're generalists, we try to cater to everyone and it dilutes our ability to be unique and stand out. Yeah. That's the biggest challenge. And it's really hard to convince people otherwise. That's what we're going to try to do at our, our conference here uh, and show people ways to step into it and see explosive growth by doing just small things. But it is kind of hard to convince people because there's this hunger to make more and more money constantly. And we look at successful companies like Amazon or, or Walmart or whoever it is. We look at these large companies and say, but they do everything. Look, that's the key. But you got to remember, that's not how they started. I actually can't think of a single case study of a large successful company that didn't start out with a narrow focus. Yep, yep. Amazon started out as a book reseller. It's all they, a bookseller. That's all they did. Yep. You know, uh, Procter and Gamble who offers thousands of different brands. All they did was, <laughs> it's funny. They made candlesticks and they made soap to start out. And they realized that was too diverse. They dropped the candlestick line and just became made soap makers. And they're the first ones to figure out how to make soap float, which, um, I can't remember what soap practice looks to say. Uh, ivory. Ivory soap floats. It was the first soap ever to float. And they targeted one market, which was the military. And in the military, in World War I and World War II, and still perhaps even today, when you got to clean up a little bit, you jump in a river. And if that, float, if that soap goes underwater, you're never getting again. So this application of floating soap hmm. catered to this market. And the military bought huge amounts of ivory soap. It does a, a little bit of a long story just to share that explosive growth happens when we cater to one community and offer something exceptional to them. That's what we need to do. And the barrier is not doing that. And you know, it's interesting. You mentioned Amazon and yes, Amazon sells literally everything right now, Earth's biggest store, so to speak. And yes, mm -hmm. they did start off selling just books. But what's interesting about Amazon is that they have focused and have never changed on making e-commerce exceptionally easy and convenient. So as they scaled, and I'm no Amazon expert, but just an observer here, would say that they still have maintained that quote unquote area of, in of innovation to quote you, Mike, in that they're now applying that singular focus that made them so famous to a wide selection of product. And I think that's what's really interesting. Yeah, no question. It'll carry you out. The, the mistake is that if we try to do all that from the get-go, if you try to be the, the exactly. Amazon today, your version of Amazon today, it is overwhelming. What we need to do is start on a, a specific community, have them carry us to a broader market with that area of innovation. And I agree that the simplified purchasing process is their shtick. But we got to start very narrow with our shtick. So figure out what your shtick is, figure out the narrow community we're going to serve, and then let that narrow community, let them carry us to a broader and broader and broader market. Mike, that was amazing. Thank you, sir. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of SKUcast. Be sure to keep up with our latest content by subscribing to SKUcast on iTunes or to our blog at community.commonskew.com. Until next time, friends. Thanks so much for listening.